The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome to Sirius XM's Cars and Culture. I'm your host, Jason Stein. In car culture circles, in NASCAR circles, in the restoration or custom build business, or even in animated car movies, there are few names that bring more respect than Ray Evernham. Accomplished crew chief, champion, broadcaster, personality. Ray Evernham checks all the boxes and more. In his own self-deprecating way, of course, Ray doesn't think of it that way. He's the self-described Forrest Gump from a New Jersey suburb. He's just the guy who wanted to be a race car driver until he realized he couldn't be. And he's just the guy who ended up in the right place with the right people at the perfect time to make history. You don't end up in the Motorsports Hall of Fame or in the NASCAR Hall of Fame by accident. And you don't end up revolutionizing a sport or working with one of the greatest drivers and race teams of all time, either with Jeff Gordon or Rick Hendrick or the team that put Dodge back on the map in NASCAR if you don't belong there. But those are just the racing accomplishments. Ray is so much more. If anything, he looks at himself as a custodian or a creator of car culture, someone who works incredibly hard to immerse himself in all things cars, whether it's collecting, restoring, or even showing vehicles at places like Pebble Beach, where he won a best-in-class recently for a 1965 Bronner Hawk IndyCar. Or maybe he's just pushing car culture down to younger generations with his role in even Pixar films, Cars 3. Even through his car restoration and custom build business, Big Iron Garage, or his TV show, Americana, Ray Evernham is doing his part. And with him, there is so much to look at in terms of passion and emotion behind that car culture. The bottom line is that Ray is a fixture in the space, and it's way beyond his ultra-successful NASCAR history. As Ray says, racing made him the money. The rest is all just for fun. Today, it's all elements of Ray's incredible journey on Cars and Culture. Hi, I'm Ray Evernham, and this is Cars and Culture with Jason Stein. He's a man who's always on the move. Uh, he's been a part of uh, many programs uh, and and folks who are who were very much on the move at a, at a fast clip. Ray Evernham, thank you so much for being on the program. It is a pleasure to have you on Cars and Culture. Oh, thanks, Jason. And I, I appreciate your patience. I know we've been trying to get this scheduled since we met at the Amelia Island Concourse. So it's great to be able to talk to you. I know you've had a lot of great guests, so I'm honored to be on. Well, thank you. Let's talk about Amelia for uh, a moment, because uh, indeed, that is the last time that uh, you and I spoke. It was my first time there. What a special event. And you've said to me, it's a cultural icon, and they do a great job of trying to preserve cars and culture. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you know, our the, the cars culture obviously has, has got to evolve as the age evolves. And, you know, you still want to keep this group of cars and that group of cars. And, you know, all the way back to when Bill Warner first started the Amelia Island Concord, he did a great job building it and getting it, getting it there. And, you know, as, as certainly Bill's time went on and, 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 built it he came to a point to where okay how do you make this thing bigger and uh McKeel Haggerty and his group came in there with a lot of new ideas and great ideas and resources to 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 be connected with our our younger stuff you know with their you know with the community and coffee thing and you know uh, you know a, a lot of the other things that they're doing like the Concord the lemons are like uh like I love stuff like that that whole you know to expand that culture because the car culture is really really big when you look at all the pieces of it you know together you know no matter whether you like the classics or the muscle cars or the race cars or the hot rods or whatever when you bring all that back together it's huge and then you throw in the porsche guys the ferrari guys the bmw guys it's huge and you know the folks at Haggerty have the ability to do that and i think that when we're doing that it just continues to make our culture so strong McKeel Haggerty, who's been on this program, uh, said about a year and a half ago, two years ago to the New York Times, that his sole mission was to preserve car culture. That's exactly what they were trying to do. You're kind of right in the middle of the whole car culture mix, too, aren't you? 
I, I am, but you know, but it's what I love. You know, people think, hey, Ray's a racer, and I love racing. Sure, I love racing, and that's how I made my career, made my name. But I really love cars, right? So that's why I enjoy being at places like Amelia or Pebble Beach or going to local hot rod show. And you know, I have friends like Rick Hendrick and Jeff Gordon, but I also have friends like Bill Warner and Mikhail Haggerty and some of the other folks, you know, that that we've met in media. I judge at the. Uh, Amelia Island Concord. I put on some of their seminars. I, I helped do some things at the Chattanooga deal getting cars. I just like to be around car people. And when people come and look at my collection, they're like, wow, that's, they're pretty surprised. They're like, that's uh, pretty eclectic. You know, you go from having a, uh, a Model T pickup truck, a 1924 mm -hmm. in original condition to, to having, you know, the, the Superbirds and things that I had. And it's just, it, it's, you know, my taste in cars is very eclectic. And that's, that's what the car culture is. So ultimately, you know, I, I, I made my money racing, but I'm, I'm a car guy. <laughs> yeah, you are a car guy too. A uh, guy from Hazlitt, New Jersey becomes a yeah. car guy. <laughs> a guy from Hazlitt, a guy from Hazlitt ends up at, you know, places like Rockingham and Darlington. I mean, tell me a little bit about your journey. Tell me, tell me about becoming Ray Evernham. You know, that's one of those things. I, I, the easiest way to explain it, I tell people, look, I am the Forrest Gump of motorsports. <laughs> I have no idea sometimes. A lot of it is just being in the right place at the right time. But but getting the opportunity to be in those places at that right time comes from the passion of, of wanting to do something with cars and think my whole life. And yeah. I was very, very fortunate. You know, there's a lot of racing in the tri-state area, a lot of open wheel modifieds and things like that in the New Jersey, Pennsylvania, New York area. I got to know a lot of people there, but honestly, biggest break came when Roger Penske, Jay Signori, Les Richter uh, decided to move IROC from Reading, Pennsylvania to Tinton Falls, New Jersey. And I got an opportunity to work for IROC and uh, under the supervision of Jay Signori and uh, obviously the umbrella of Roger Penske. That was really that was really the, the biggest break I ever got in my life. You know, not just what I learned from them, but the, the opportunities that it, that it got me. And I realized, man, if I ever really want to do this, I'm not going to be able to stay in New Jersey and do it. I'm either going to have to go to move to, to Indianapolis and, and race, or I'm going to have to move South and race stock cars. You were a, you were a modified racer, but that moment that you just talk about with IROC, was when you had the chance to become a chassis specialist, right, at 26. And the word is that everybody was really impressed that you could handle some of the technological adjustments that were going into a vehicle. But growing up, was that really where you thought you were going to end up? Oh, no. I was sure that the only reason I went, that the only reason I went to IROC, to, because I just knew that when Roger met me and saw me drive my modified, he was definitely going to put me in his IndyCar. I mean, he, you know, got, you know, it was like, my goodness, I'd, I'd been winning races at Wall Stadium. Why wouldn't he even take me to the Indy 500? I, so I saw that path. But what they did give me the opportunity to do was test drive the IROC cars. So the way that worked, we'd work on them, set them up, and we'd get to the track. And Dave Marcus and George Fulmer would have the final say. But the cars would need to be shooken down, you know, checked out mechanically. And that was my job. So I got to drive all of the IROC cars and share notes with Dave Marcus and George Fulmer and a lot of the other drivers. And when when you're with those guys and you're the guy they're communicating to about what this feels like and what that feels like, you learn a lot. And I think, you know, between working with Dave and George, and then the incredible amount of stuff that I learned from working with Goodyear on the tires, uh, it, it gave me that feeling like the drivers would talk to me, but I, I knew what they were talking about because I'd felt it and had driven myself. And I think that's really a big part of the success that I had with Jeff Gordon. I, I, I could feel what he was telling me, mm. explaining it, and it led me to know where I needed to go with the race car. And, you know, th there just comes a point in your life when you realize, hey, I'm probably don't have the talent to be a superstar driver, but I can be a coach. It's no different than football or baseball or whatever. Some of the best coaches were okay players, but they, they understood the game. 
And when, when they applied that science to people who really had the talent and ability, you know, good things happened. And uh, it kind of sucked to find out that I didn't really have the talent that I thought I had. But, uh, you know, hey, you know, as I always tell everybody, well, I wish I could sing like Elvis Presley, too, but I couldn't do that either. So right, it's just right. part of it. But uh, so I, I that, um, again, my years at IROC uh, combined being behind the wheels with the many different race cars that I've driven in my life, because I've driven on dirt, I've driven on pavement, I've driven cars with wings, cars without wings, cars with fenders, without fenders, a lot of cars, you, you know, and, and thinking about the science of making those things work, and then translating it back to what, uh, what a driver was telling you. And, you know, I, you know, I, I, I guess I miss those days, because now everything's done based off of all of the data in the car. And the simulation and it's, it's this you know that, that that's kind of taking the fun out of it for me you know when, when you used to have look your, your tools were stopwatches and tire temperatures and right. you know shock uh, travel and 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 you know things like that now now it's it, it's pretty much you know all of the data on the cars tells tells the driver how to drive them yeah the simulation rooms that i've been in at uh, hendrick motorsports for example are war rooms it's it's like looking at a nasa screen right I mean, yeah. you didn't you didn't have any of that going. No, I, I was uh, went back and helped Rick and, and Jeff for a while. And, and uh, you know, some of that I actually when when I went over to Dodge and, and we did a lot of work with the folks at McLaren, I knew that was coming. So uh, we started that when I did my Dodge team and then continued, uh, you know, when I went back to Hendrick, you know, really pushed about getting that. And they have taken that and just exploded. You know, yeah. General Motors is, you know, they just built a new tech center and everything right down there by right. Hendrick. They just they just. You know, the technology has gone exponentially. Like I, I look at those cars now and think I, I, I wouldn't even begin to know how to start one. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We're a long way from rubbing and racing, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about meeting Jeff Gordon uh, because it was a little bit of serendipity to some extent. You had just kind of walked out. You had started working uh, with uh, Alan uh, Kowicki around 1990, 91 or so, end of 91. And uh, it wasn't going to work for you for a couple of different reasons, but you're walking out of the garage area and you run into a couple of guys, right? And w what do they say to you? Yeah. Well, you, you got to go back just a little bit before that. You see, actually, Jeff and I did some races together in 1990 and really hit it off. When I left IROC, I started my own business. And in between building my own cars, Andy Petrie called me up, who was Harry Gant's crew chief, and said, hey, my buddy's going to run this kid in four or five races. He needs some help. Will you help him? Well, that kid turned out to be Jeff Gordon. We hit it off. We didn't, we didn't do great. We sat on the, I think, outside pole at Rockingham, crashed a couple times, whatever. Jeff goes back to Indiana to race. So, uh, and, and I go back to New Jersey to race. So I'm trying to become a race car driver. Mm. Well, Jeff gets a ride in, uh, I think, the Ford dealer's car. And he ran the 91 season. And, and I ended up going back. And I got hurt in my modified. So I couldn't race anymore. And um, I had been doing some stuff for Alan Kowicki. He so he brought me down to North Carolina and Jeff's down there and and you know Jeff 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 wasn't doing great not as great as he should have been doing and Alan and I Alan was one of the most brilliant people um, on the planet a super race car driver but his personality and my personality look Jason we were literally everybody goes oh we were no we were literally throwing stuff at one another the, the, <laughs> in a short period of time so I quit the day before the day down five hundred bumped into Preston Miller and Lee Morse from Ford. And they said, where are you going? I said, home. They said, hotel. I said, no, New Jersey. I'm done. I, I don't have a job. And they said, hey, calm down. We think we have something, you know, because Jeff, Jeff said, I, I, need, I need a better chassis guy. I need a better handling car. So the Ford people put me over on Bill Davis's race team. And Jeff Gordon and I got going again and started winning races and polls, uh, uh, immediately, but had not been for that chance meeting, had I not bumped into those guys, you know, at, walking out the gate at Daytona on a on a Saturday afternoon, you know, I, I could have been selling frozen yogurt on the Jersey boardwalk. I mean, who knows? <laughs> well, and in fact, uh, the owner, Bill Davis Racing, didn't want to hire you, right? But somebody insisted that you be hired. Well, Bill just didn't have the budget, um, and he wasn't sure if he needed me. He didn't know me, you know, really. Not that many people knew me. Preston Miller um, and Lee Morris and I talked quite a bit because I had built some Ford cars for the Australian race driver, Dick Johnson. And they, you know, for some reason, they figured I was pretty sharp. And they knew um, they knew I had done some things for Alan. 
Um, and, and I'd also done some things for Oldsmobile. And, and again, a lot of people knew my IROC background. Some people, some people didn't. And, uh, you know, Bill just didn't have the budget. And he's like, I'm not sure if I need that guy. You know, I got this guy and, and whatnot. And Ford said, well, we'll pay and put him over there. And when I went over there the first week, it was not, they were like, I started cutting their cars up, <laughs> you know, changing all the front end stuff. And Bill's like, whoa, you know, like, wait a, you know, Hey kid, this ain't a modified, you know? Um, <laughs> and, uh, we went to the track and just sat on the pole, like, boom. And they were like, wow. So, uh, you know, finally we, uh, we, we sat on some poles and we kept missing the race set up and they said, well, let's go test Atlanta. And, uh, we went, uh, they got me some test time. I needed to understand the, you know, heavier car, smaller tires and all this stuff. And we went and tested Atlanta and came up with a setup down there. And we ended up winning the Atlanta race, beating, uh, Mark Martin and Dale Earnhardt and, and, and groups like that. And, and, and that really started the ball rolling for us. The ball did start rolling. You remained the crew chief for Jeff Gordon after he moved over to Hendrick Motorsports and, and into the Winston Cup Series. Uh, final race of 92 to 99, and, and the rest was history. Tell me a little bit, Jeff's been on this program. Tell me a little bit about what you noticed in Jeff that was different than other drivers. Um, Jeff, you know, you had him, I met him. He was a kid when I met him, and and you you know, I was always impressed with the fact of how mature he was about his racing, and and hit how high his racing IQ was. And by that I mean just the ability to see stuff, to get stuff, to get that racing. You know, people like people who have golfed at an early age have a high golf IQ or a baseball IQ. Jeff had a very very high racing IQ, and his ability his ability to break something down to describe what the car was doing or what a lap was um, reminded me very much of the, the stars I had worked with at IROC. And I'm talking about Andretti, Foyt, mm. Unser, Earnhardt, Rusty Wallace. They all spoke very differently about how the car was breaking down. And that would always tell me that Jeff was much more comfortable in his environment and you know there's there's a thing i read about great athletes like um michael jordan and they talk about how their sense of time like a second you know to you and i is different right where it is to them where jeff could process so much information around there and i thought to myself there's no way that's experience this kid's 18 years old right this is this is talent and this is this is this is an incredible ability and he he, he just always had that. And people say, well, you know, what was Jeff's biggest, you, you know, what, what was his biggest plus? What, what was it, you know, the, the thing that made him, and, you know, you think when you talk about race drivers, oh, they're brave or they're this or that, you know, Jeff, extremely, extremely smart about racing. If I said to him, look, I need you to get off the right front tire, get the car over on the right rear tire, or I need you to do this and that, he would just, he would just somehow do it. And, you know, you would read the tire pressure and go like, okay, you know, where if you said it to somebody else, other guys I work with, they'd be like, what, what, you know, like, you, you know, J Jeff is, uh, you know, uh, again, to me, he's always going to be the greatest race car driver. You know, he's still like a little brother to me. So um, he called me tomorrow and said, Hey man, I'm going racing. I'd be going with him. <laughs> yeah. You were the head of the rainbow warriors uh, and the, and the pit crew really was considered one of the most innovative and you helped improve duration, efficiency of pit stops. And you most importantly, maybe created a group of specialists. Sometimes they were even former athletes who trained for their specific tasks. Nobody had really done it like that before, Ray. Where did that come from? Uh, you know, when, when I really started to look at the, the pit stop stuff, you know, there were people that were doing things in, in uh, you know, the Wood Brothers were phenomenal, right? And, and, and uh, Richard Childress with his group, you know, I think they called them the junkyard dogs at, at that time. All phenomenal guys, right? Great. But they also worked on the car 12, 14, 16 hours a day. So that didn't leave them a lot of time to, to, to pit stop, you know, to make practices or, you know, I started to think in, in uh, honestly, in fairness to Alan, when I first went there, Alan had us all working out. He wanted us all to work out. But again, same problem. No time to practice you know, you really no time to work out or you'd be so dog tired from working on the car. It'd be hard to concentrate on pit stops. So I started to think, why not have a different group of guys pit 
this car so that they can focus on pit stops. They can focus on their, 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 you know, their health and their ability and not be tired from working on the car 12 hours a day. And I say 12 hours a day because, you know, in those days there wasn't, you know, there wasn't all these like, Oh, you got to come in and you work at from seven to four and you go home. There's none of that. You, you came in and you worked till it was done, you know, and the crews weren't as big as they are now. So, you know, it, it was a lot of, a lot of hours. So um, we took that approach. Uh, had a lot of people tell us it wouldn't work, but I will tell you that Rick Hendricks saw what we were doing, believed in it, um, and put a lot of support behind us to do that, and then saw the results. And, you know, when I look at what they're doing now and what everybody does, it, it's kind of the standard. So I guess in some ways I'm proud of, of that, um, you know, in the sport in other ways i'm like damn you know i've cost everybody a lot of money over the years too because <laughs> it's gotten expensive you know yeah for sure what some there are a million moments in that storied career working alongside jeff a couple that stand out that maybe exemplify what the two of you and and the team were trying to do together are there moments in time maybe maybe it was the first brickyard 400 or maybe or maybe it was another uh, another point in time that that really stands out well, you know, the, the, your first win is always going to stand out, you, you know, that, you know, our first win together at Atlanta um, and, and uh, with the Bush car with, with, with Bill Davis. And uh, I will tell you, I love Bill Davis and I had more fun working at Bill Davis's because it was, it was only at that time, it was only about four or five of us. And, we, you know, everybody did everything. And Bill, Bill's one of the funniest people on the planet. He has a really sarcastic sense of humor. So we had a lot of fun. Um, and then our first one at Charlotte, but but really it was the brickyard that changed. It it changed it changed the world for us, right? We looked at we said ah they did two tires at Charlotte ah they did it you know whatever. We went to the brickyard and I think we beat everybody pretty heads up, and it really changed things. It gave Jeff confidence, it gave me confidence, it gave the team confidence, and it really took us to that next level where we were able to go and battle for the championship because we believed we could. And that really, uh, that really changed uh, where we were at. And I, I think that the, when I talk about probably our biggest race, our biggest victory as a team, when you look at the 1997 uh, Darlington 500, you know, the Southern 500 it was for a million bucks, tons of pressure, you know, last one to win it was Bill Elliott, all this stuff. That day, we did not have a good car. We had about a fifth place car. And I tell everybody like, look, we did so many changes that day so many pit stops. Jeff drove so hard. We did all these things like that day as a team, we won the Southern 500 and a million bucks with a car that was not only at fifth place car at best when we started, it was basically destroyed after the race because it had been damaged so much and we fixed it and we did this and we did that. And it was when I looked at that, that day, I think that was our biggest victory as a group, you know, to, that everybody put something in to win that race with a car that probably wasn't capable that day. After the break, I'll continue my conversation with NASCAR Hall of Famer Ray Evernham. And to see my interview with him, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. The automobile is one of the most important inventions that revolutionized the modern world. In America, the rich history of car culture runs deep as technology continues to shape the future of the industry. Jason Stein is here to share the stories of people passionate about cars, from industry leaders and innovators to car-obsessed celebrities. Buckle up as Jason takes you inside the boardroom, onto the track, and around the bend on Cars and Culture on Sirius XM Business Radio. Welcome back to the program. I'm Jason Stein, your host. Now the continuation of my conversation with NASCAR Hall of Famer, Ray Evernham. And to see my interview with Ray, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. Your time as a team owner, how would you in encapsulate or synthesize what that was like? I mean, a totally uh, new experience for you and and obviously uh, um, some, some highs, some lows. Yeah, you know, great experience. It was great, great experience. Great people. The the people at at um, at Dodge believed in me, and I feel like we did everything that we could. We delivered um, for them. Uh, good Dodge cars. We won races. Uh, came close to having to Dodge win a championship. Finally, Roger Penske was able to do that uh, for them. You know, but it was. Um, it was a huge change in life from me that I don't, you know, I, I, I 
I'm, I'm a project guy, like doing that in 500 days, built, you know, all the parts, designed the cars, start to race teams, did it like that was what I do. And as it came to going for me trying to do what Rick Hendrick does and what Roger Penske does, what Jack Roush does, that was very difficult for me. Uh, and I, 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 I didn't really know how much I didn't know. I just wasn't, you know, to do what, what Mr. Hendrick, I, I'm telling you what, do what Mr. Hendrick does and what Mr. Penske does and what that, what, you know, what, you know, even what Justin Marks is doing right now, like that mm -hmm. takes a complete business mind that's different mindset than somebody that does what I do, right? I'm a right. field, you know what I mean? You want some, I'll get some stuff done, you know, but you want to run the country, that takes a different person. And uh, so I, I, I just never felt comfortable in that role. And we were doing well, we had success and we, and I got the idea at that time, you know, I was going to bring somebody else in and, and, and I was going to find this perfect partner and he was going to do that. And I was going to take care of the cars and the team and we were going to be okay. And as like with most partnerships, some, you know, it, it just didn't work out. And um, I, I retired from uh, being 100% active uh, with the race team in, in, in about 2008. So, you know, again, some super, super great memories. But then that sense of man, I, you know, like, it, you know, and I've got to be okay with it. But you know what? I, I had to look in the mirror one day and say, you know what? Roger Penske and Rick Hendrick are two of my heroes. You're not those guys. The same as I had to look in the mirror that day and say, you want to be a race car driver, but you're not Jeff Gordon, right? Yeah. So, so I, I've been blessed to have a lot of really, really good positive things come out of it. Uh, but. Uh, you well, know, that's that great. So that's great. Self-reflection business there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, completely. Well, and speaking of since then, you, you've had a lot of finished business or, or even ongoing business and you've transformed it into that racing career into so many other things, Ray. Uh, I want to go through some of them. Um, and some of them are just an absolute blast. How about building the 850 horsepower ghost from scratch and taking it up Pikes Peak Hill Climb in 2018? What was that like? That was that was the ultimate for me. Okay, that was the that was the the, the Ray Evernham ultimate. And you know, you're bringing that up because we're we're just finishing up some stuff and I'll, a little selfish promotion, but actually writing a book about all those experiences. And we've been talking a lot about the ghost and what that is was really that was a metaphor about my career. I was bored. I, you know, you question like I need something to do. I needed something to energize my myself, and I thought let's build a car the old fashioned way with everything we learn now, but we're going to build it like we used to build it before we had all of these super tools and, you know, design software and this and that. And we built a car like, a, like I would be building a modified an old modified, but then as it, as it developed, we're like, well, let's make it like an Indy car. Well, let's make it a cross between a Trans Am car and modified an Indy car and whatever else. And, uh, we decided we wanted to take this car and run it around the country. And we have, we've run it at lots of different places. It's got a 36 Chevy body on it, a steel 36 Chevy body, everything underneath of it. We designed, it was built here. You know, it's got full tunnels. It weighs um, about uh, 2,700 pounds with me in it and fuel. So if the car is under 2,500 pounds, has 850 horsepower with a hundred. We also have an additional shot of a hundred nitrous on it in case you need a little extra boost and, uh, <laughs> but it makes uh it makes about 2800 pounds of downforce at 180 miles an hour so it's pretty badass wow badass is right speak, uh, as rookies and uh and went up there and won the open uh experimental class uh or the experimental class is what we won as rookies and to me that kind of put a check mark on my driving career just saying okay that's the biggest thing i've ever done behind the wheel and and it was special to me to do that Amazing story. When does the book come out? Uh, probably going to be out in uh, the first quarter of 2024. You know, that okay. we're working on it, uh, working on it right now. And it, it uh, it's really, a, you know, a lot of those stories that people have wanted to hear about specific races or the stuff with Jeff Gordon or, you know, again, like the Pikes Peak trip. But a lot of that behind the scenes stuff of, hey, when you ask me, all right, tell me how. Ha how did you become Ray Evernham? You know, it, it, it follows uh, all that up. And I think a lot of people will be surprised. They'll be like, Oh, wow. I, I didn't know that. Or I didn't, you know, and, and you start to find out that it, it no different than probably you and your career and your, it, 
your, your DNA comes from all the people you've crossed paths from and you somehow exactly. all these dots get connected and, you know, and then here you are. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Other projects, you did a voice for Cars 3. Yeah. Ray Reverham. <laughs> Creative, which, right? Yeah. It's amazing. Which you said was one of your most special achievements because of what it meant to your son, Ray J. What do you mean by that? Well, Ray J is autistic, right? So um, with an autistic person, you know, and Ray J was around. Ray J has been in championship victory lane celebrations and hung out with Jeff Gordon. He's been to the White House. He's been to all those things. And they just don't register in the world of an autistic person, as you would expect with a neurotypical person. Uh, but for some reason, you know, Ray J's thing is movies and the cartoons and Disney. And all of a sudden, his dad being involved in the production of, of the Cars 3 movie and then being a character, it, it, it took me to his world. Instead of me bringing him to my world all the time, I went to his world. And it was one of the most incredible times that we had. We worked with Pixar. Both Jeff did too. Um, they interviewed us and a lot of the story and Aaron, my wife, got to be part of the, these interviews about communications, and we spent some time, and you're not going to work with a more wonderful group of people than the people at Pixar, I can tell you that. And Jay Ward, again, love him like a, a, a brother, incredibly talented man, and, and uh, you know, but that for thing for Ray J was the first time in all the wins, the Daytona 500, the championships, the car show, the this, that. I was in his world and he got to be around those characters and it was just amazing. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. Ray Riverham. <laughs> our, yeah. Speaking of Jay, um, who's been on the program and is our uh, mutual friend, he tells us that you have some good stories about being in the wrong place at the right time, at the wrong time, rather, while hunting for cars. And maybe it's the closest you've ever come to death. I'll tell you what, I've got to be careful how I tell the story. And Jay is, and again, you know, Jay, Jay's got some stories and, and uh, you know, I, I got to be um, with him and, and Wayne Carini uh, and did some things on there, but, you know, Jay Ward, uh, and you know him as a friend, he is not only the one, one of the most wonderful, caring people you will ever meet, but he is a serious car guy. He yeah. knows a lot about a lot of, a lot of things. I'm always impressed with his knowledge, but uh so I know the story he's talking about, so I got to be careful about how I tell this. But, you know, when you're hunting cars, you just go, right? You kind of go. And I'm in the South. And so I'm from the North. And I'm a little bit naive about certain areas and things that you just, I mean, I just naive. Well, well, I guess long story short, I, I ended up in the wrong place and got in the middle of what would be a Klan meeting. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> came for a car and tried. they tried to get me to go and join this thing they were doing. Ah. And I had to explain to them that I didn't have the same beliefs that they had. I'm only here for the car. And I'm, yeah, and it was, uh, so it got interesting because I thought to myself, how in the hell am I going to tell them why I why I don't agree with them? I'm not interested, right? And then, and then get out of there. So it was uh, there, there was a good bit to the story, but it was uh, it was sweating. And of course, I had a friend of mine with me who was from Australia, who he didn't, you know, he he didn't have a clue. So he was joking around, and and uh, but it was it was quite interesting. You know, I, at one point, I said to Jay, I felt like every time we were going down the road that we were just waiting for somebody to come up and shoot us with a shotgun or right. something. So it was, uh, so now I'm very careful about uh, of where and when I go to, to look at stuff. If I don't, if I don't know the people. So hunting for cars. So how many cars do we have in the Ray Everham collection now? Well, I sold again, I sold a big part of the collection last year at Meekum. Uh, but since that we've been gathering a lot of cars, we've been buying a lot of the vintage IROC cars and, and, and whatnot. So the collection right now, all told is uh, um, about half the size it was, you know, we're probably 45, 50 cars. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, we're a, a lot of that right now, I have 11 um, IROC race cars, and we're, uh, 
I don't have a Porsche, you know, that we don't have a Porsche. The Porsche is just untouchable, but you know, the Gen 1, Gen 2 Camaros, um, Gen 3 Camaros, because so, actually Gen, Gen 3 Camaros are the ones that, uh, that I worked on. Um, Avengers, Firebirds. Uh, so, you know, I, I just, I've always been amazed by the IROC series and that's kind of how I designed, I designed that SRX series, Tony Stewart and I really leaning towards the, uh, the IROC series. What have you learned in that experience, the SRX? Uh, again, you know, uh, it, it's, I'm not really involved, uh, running it anymore. I started it. I'm proud of it. Uh, I'm proud of what we did. I love designing the cars and the, and the tracks and, and whatnot, but again, turned that over to the businessmen to try and see if they could make it work. Been struggling uh, a little bit, uh, with, with some of those things, but I still think that there's a, there is a space for motorsports entertainment in, in, in the American market right now. But it's got to be based around the driver, right? It's got people, the drivers are the personality. And we always got to remember that. And we've got to get the drivers close to the fans. We've got to get the fans to be able to see them and to interact. And, and we, we don't have to have a 100,000 person stadium. We can go to small tracks. We can take drivers there. And then, and then but then it's got to be a good TV show. And to be a good TV show, it's got to have things other than racing in it. So, I, you know, again, that was the formula that I wanted. So, you know, we'll see. I, I, I do think that there's, there's a space for that, but, uh, but we'll see. We've talked on this program a ton about Netflix and the influence it's had on racing in America now. And the, the, to your point, you know, there has to be a TV show with a good storyline and, and a good narrative. You've been in, in your share of, um, media moments uh, also as a tv personality what are your thoughts on on the state of racing in america right now and a lot of these behind the scenes programs that are out there i think that they're good you know any exposure to it is going to get people thinking right so you know i think it's great with the podcast i think it's it's great with some of the the, the short stuff that we're seeing you know the netflix stuff you know you throw a big net out, right? And th then you, you know, you kind of, kind of narrow it down to, to, to what's really getting the most hits. I think what they did with the formula one series was amazing. I mean, it's, it's proven that it's, that they've done it. Um, they're doing something like that right now with garage 56. I think that may, maybe Amazon or, or that's right. I, that's going to be a good show. I mean, that, you know, I think what they did with garage 56 was really important to American racing and did as much for NASCAR and and how far our engineering's come as anything. So to me, I think that was a. I know it was expensive, but it was a great deal. Had not had they not had a, a, a part failure, they might have upset the apple cart over there right. with the way that they right. were running. They, they were running right. pretty darn good. Um, you know, they weren't going to win the overall, but they were certainly in, in pretty good uh, position. You know, and then things like the Chicago Street Race again. To me, in my opinion, brilliant idea. That's that's exposing racing, you know, to a different demographic instead of asking the people from Chicago to drive out to the other speedway an hour away and fight the traffic and everything. Hey, we'll come to you. We'll take the racing to you, you know, going back to the old, you know, PT Barnum stuff, like, okay, you know, the circus, we'll take the circus to you that, and it was successful. So, you know, I think that we've got to have our, 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 historical stadiums we got to keep the Fenway parks and you know the Wrigley Fields and stuff like that but uh, you know we got to take the show on the road a little bit too so I I feel like racing is is in a better place than it's ever been a because I, I think they've done a great job with this new gen car cutting you know you're not ever going to I'm sorry cut cost you're not going to cut cost but the 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 angle, the line that that cost was going up on, they they've they've brought that down, and they've also also made it so that a new team owner can come in and be competitive, which is key, right? A younger team again. You, I'll use Justin Marks again as an example. New team owner, you don't have to have a gazillion billions of past notes and this and that comes in fairly competitive because it's it's somewhat of a spec car. So they're opening the door for new owners. They're opening the door for new manufacturers. They're, they're, they're trying to get a younger demographic. I look at it and go, okay, look, it's not going to happen overnight, but everything that, that I see NASCAR doing is heading in the right direction. And again, Formula One goes without saying. I mean, it's, it's it, it, you know, just look at their numbers and look what they're doing. They, 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 they're hitting home runs. And if Formula One is healthy, NASCAR is healthy, 
IndyCar is going to be healthy and everything that trickles down under it's going to be healthy. You know, there's some there's some things like, you know, what Tony Perella and that group have done with, with that Trans Am 2 deal. I don't know if you follow the Trans Am 2 series. Phenomenal. We're not 50, yeah, 60 right. cars showing up. You know, so so if the big guys are healthy, the rest of it will be healthy. A lot of young drivers now in NASCAR who are gaining a lot of attention. It kind of reminds me back to the time when you and another young driver were there. What what do you think of the state of NASCAR today and and maybe how how much younger it's gotten? Well, you know, I, you know, I don't want to say that I'm the Nostradamus, but you know, years ago I started to look at the what was happening and guys were running till 55 years old. And then it went to 50, you know, and then it got and I started to think, okay, this is eventually as the cars get more technical and the cars get faster that age is going to start coming down like formula one. And then at the same time, what I didn't think about was all of the simulators and the eye racings and the way that these kids could start so much younger now with, you know, the legends cars and quarter midgets and, uh, and all of a sudden, you know, we had these 20, 21 year old guys coming in and they were competitive right off the bat. So, you know, we're going to progressively see that level that age level coming down, which is good for a couple of reasons. It brings a younger demographic into the sport, but I still believe on a, on a, if we control it safe wise, again, what I was starting to do with the SRX, I think there's there, I think there could be a senior tour. I, I do where, you know, Hey, a guy's 45 years old. He may not want to run 40 cup races a year or be ready to do that, but he might want to run 10 on a short track at lesser speed. So I think that there, there, there's some good possibilities there, you know, uh, uh, you know, you know, I always push probably too hard and want things to happen too fast. But I, I, I think that, that right now, even though we went through a dry spell for a while, the sport's in a really good place. Yeah. Agreed. Let's talk about your show, Americana, share some history and, and maybe some crazy stories that you've uncovered on the program. Ah, uh, Americana was just that was just that that show. You're like, hey, let's do a TV show just about whatever we want to do. I want to go find cars. And and, you know, my love of cars goes back to, you know, when you were or when I was a kid, cars were the backdrop for everything we did. Right. You stood in front of your on Easter, you took a picture of your car, you know, like we didn't have all of the fancy this fancy that. And they, you know, automobiles and the history not just racing, but even the production automobile, they, it's pretty much documented our timeline of, of our, our evolution of what America and USA has been like, right? So we just started, I said, let's kick around the idea, go finding cars that tell a story of America. Or, and they may not have to be a famous person or a famous town, but just something that connects to America. And that, that's how we came up with Americana. And uh, it was on Velocity. Uh, we did four seasons on Velocity. And now it, it, uh, Bob Scanlon and his group have started a new speed vision network again so we're you know we've teamed up with them and they're they're showing the heck out of them and and hopefully we'll start producing some some new ones but it's really a story about a car that you know is going to be interested i used to tell everybody look here here's here's our format e's and c's okay it's got to be educational it's got to have entertainment and it's got to have emotion it's got to have cars culture and cool all right e's and c's yeah perfect Bring me a story that fits that <laughs> Right. And uh, and we had a lot of fun with it. That's where we found, uh, you know, we found the, the Mario Andretti Bronner Hawk and restored it. We found Dan Gurney's, which was Mario's first win. We also found the IndyCar that was uh, uh, Dan Dan Gurney's last win, the American Graffiti 1958 Chevy that was driven in the movie by Ron Howard. I and mean, that was a car I chased for years. We got it. And I, I still have that car. You know, so really a lot of great stories, met some great people, but I feel like we we saved some very historical cars and, and told some really great stories. Big iron garage. Uh, that's, that's another project that you mentioned being bored earlier, but I, I, I can't imagine that you're ever bored. So <laughs> I was for a while, but you got to remember when you're out there, when you're winning 10 races a year with Jeff Gordon, or you're doing flying all over doing, you know, ESPN races with, and, and you're working with Rusty Wallace and Brad Darty and, and, and Dale Jarrett, you know, like those were, you know, if we ever could write a book that wouldn't get us in trouble, I, if I would only recorded the conversations on the airplanes with, with Rusty and Dale and, and Brad, you know, Brad Darty is by far and away the funniest guy I've ever worked with in my life. You know, when you you know what it's like doing TV or doing production, they're counting down your sure. producers like, OK, we'll back live in five, four. Well, Brad would make a comment and crack me up 
So every time, as soon as we're we're about ready to come back live, I'm like, oh God, don't put the camera on me. Don't ask me because I can't stop laughing. It was it it was a blast doing that with him. So it was easy to get bored when all that stopped. Well, you're not bored with Big Iron Garage, which is a car restoration custom build business. Um, you started it. It it really is all about your lifelong passion. And um, tell me a little bit about Big Iron and and for those interested in having something in Big Iron, what do they need to do? Well, really, you know, Big Iron Garage, I've got, I'm surrounded by some of the people I've worked with for years and I'll put my guys up against anybody in the business as far as building, restoring cars. Uh, and I just decided that, look, we'll take in some other work. So we do, besides restoring all of my cars, we do take in customer work. We've done stuff for Scott Porchetta from, from Big Machine. We've done stuff for Dave Roberts. You know, again, we restored the Andretti car, the, the Gurney car. We did we did a, a bunch of, of, of different things. So we do take work uh, here. Um, and the best way is just to reach out on, on you know, a Big Iron Garage on our website. And we get probably tons of um, people say, hey, I got this car, I got that car. You know, please send those, send them to Big Iron Garage or send them to Ray Everham Enterprises because it's nothing for us to go like, hey, you know what, there's an IROC car out in the woods or whatever, and we'll go get it. So right now, you know, we're trying to gather up a, a, a lot of IROC cars, but we we're really pride ourselves in be able to uh, to make make an existing car, let's say better or or design or build something uh, something really unique. And we, we try not to do two of the same. I love to do different projects. If you said, hey, you know, the only guy that ever got me to do 10 of anything was Ron Pratt because he wanted Ron one of these special dune buggies, you know, the sand buggies. So yeah, we built him 10 of them. But uh, other than that, we normally build one-offs. You're a Motorsports Hall of Famer now. You're a NASCAR Hall of Famer, of course. Uh, your thoughts on being inducted into both? In, in, in incredibly humbling, right? Because, you know, that whole, um, that, that whole sense of, uh, you, know, you know, what do they call it? The, 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 the fear of being an imposter or whatever. You're like, what am I doing here with all these people? They're going to find out, I, you know, they're going to find out I don't belong here, you know, that... Uh, yeah, you know, Forrest, uh, Forrest Gump is being inducted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, uh, it it's um, as I said, it, it's very humbling when, and it, it's the greatest honor that you can get to be recognized by so many of the heroes. Uh, you know, and, and proud to to be in in Baltimore. I will tell you, but Motorsports Hall of Fame, NASCAR Hall of Fame. You know, anytime that we get recognized like that, it is. Uh, it really makes me feel like I haven't let all the people down who have helped me, you know, because we talked about your DNA and the people, so many people throughout my career have, have given me a leg up with either with knowledge or money, or they've just picked me up when, when, when I believed I couldn't, they told me I could, you know, you know, and and when when you get recognized, you can look at those people and say you you, you didn't waste your time then on, on me like uh, you know you didn't uh, I didn't let you down and and that it's very it, I'm gonna tell you it's very hard to stand on that stage and talk without without having a bunch of emotion come through I will tell you that but it's uh you know those um those things are very very important to me. Who would be the one person? that you think should be in the NASCAR hall of fame. That's maybe never been added. Oh, wow. I feel like all of the people that fit the criteria or deserve to get in there will get added. That's a very, very hard question because everyone, every single person who's in there deserves to be in there. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're part of the voting list as people, you know, they're in there, the list of people behind them, everyone on that list is, has more than enough credentials to get, to get in there. And I'm thinking, God, oh, well, yes. Yeah. So, so it would be hard for me to pick and say, okay, well, yeah, this person definitely needs to go in ahead of all these other people, because you think that I'm gonna tell you, you think that until you start looking and doing all the research and then you're like, Oh yeah. You know, so it, it's, it's hard. You know, as I said, the one thing that, that I will tell you is that uh, 
I do 100% believe it. Every year, they pick the right group. You know, every year somehow they pick the right group and the list that's waiting, every one of those people deserve to be in, in there as, as well. Um, yeah. And I know people, a lot of people ask me specifically about Smokey Eunuch and uh, I'm a big Smokey fan, uh, was friends with him and he is on that, on that waiting list. And I think someday he will get in there, but as close and everything as I was and everything, when I look at the voting and how they do it and, you know, what that whole, I, and they, and then people hate it when they say this, this whole body of work, everybody they've picked so far, you know, I think they've made the right choice. Yeah. Final thing, what I saw at Amelia, just to go back to the start of our conversation is a bit of a measure of celebrity about you. Now, when you hosted the panel where the conversation occurred about uh, Lamont, what is it like for you to have that, to have that, that, that celebrity uh, uh, status? Uh, you know, it's just, everybody's got an ego, right? So it, it's just <laughs> enough to keep my ego going. You like to put on your suit. You like to go up there and you do a good job. You know, you get your 15 minutes of fame or, or whatever it is. But I think most of what it does is allow me to operate in that world with some credibility because they know, hey, you know, I don't know diddly about this Rolls Royce ghost. I'm trying to learn or this and that, but to, I think everyone that comes to one of our seminars or you know, one of our panels knows that I put in the work, like I'll do the research and I do my very best to make sure that, again, going back to that, E's and C's, right? You know, that, that, that we entertain, we emotion and educate and that everyone has a good time. And I work hard at that. And I think that, I think that they respect me for that. Um, I wouldn't say that uh, I'm, I'm a celebrity. You know, I always tell everybody I'm, I'm just a guy that knows a lot of celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a masterful job hosting the panel at uh, Amelia and it was very entertaining. I, I will tell you that. So uh, well, that was that you cannot have a panel with Kenny Schrader on it and not be entertaining. <laughs> yes. Or uh, uh, Justin Bell. Uh, yeah, Justin <laughs> Bell. Yeah. <laughs> well, you might be the kid from Hazlitt, New Jersey. You might be Forrest Gump, but you're also Ray Evernham. And thank you for sharing your cars and culture story with us here uh, today on the program. Well, thank you very much. En enjoyed it. And uh, sorry it took us so long to get together. Look forward to catching up in a million. Great. Thank you, Ray. Thanks again to my guest today, NASCAR Hall of Famer, Ray Evernham. And to see my interview with Ray, go to the Cars and Culture YouTube channel. Like and subscribe to see more than 100 interviews. And thanks for listening to the show. You can follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook, as well as on Instagram at Cars and Culture SXM and on Twitter at Cars and Culture. I'm Jason Stein. We'll see you down the road.